0: Hi all, Jacob Austin here, owner of QS.Zone, and welcome to episode 11 of the Subcontractors Blueprint, the show where subcontractors will learn how to ensure profitability, improve cash flow, and grow their business. Today's episode, number 11, is about insolvency. So I wanted to bring you this episode today because of the number of alarming headlines there's been recently concerning administration and insolvency of various Contractors, subcontractors and key players within the market. So at the time of recording, there are 19 articles on the Construction Enquirer within the last month, all relating to insolvency of some description. Some of the casualties include Hayden M&E, Ilkey Holmes, Mitten and Buckingham Group. And reading some of the articles, the figures are absolutely astonishing. And it can only really represent huge losses up and down the supply chain. And there has to be some kind of a question here of whether some of these companies have continued to trade once they've already known that they've become insolvent. Looking at Ilkie Homes with £320 owed, it's absolutely incredible. Looking at some of the detail, subcontractors and suppliers were owed £17 million of that amount. £68 million pounds owed to Homes England, and the sister company owing £14 million pounds to subbies and suppliers. The overwhelming majority is presumed to be planned debt, and sadly is going to mean colossal losses to their equity investors. I couldn't claim to know how much money that sort of a debt would require just to service it and keep the business going, but you would imagine it's absolutely Massive numbers of turnover required just to stay afloat. And really, the business model, I would presume, wouldn't be helpful in this situation because a large amount of the work is done pre-getting to site. And unless there's some kind of mechanism for payment up front, we're talking of goodness knows how much tied up in factory investment and creating stock, before it can actually be delivered to site and ultimately recovered or paid for by whoever it is who's buying it. So insolvency is a situation where either a person or a business has got too much debt and they don't have sufficient funds to keep trading, to keep servicing the debt, and ultimately cannot continue to pay the debts that they owe. Within companies, there are a few different types of insolvency and those can be company voluntary arrangements, which is where a company may continue to trade and the directors will retain that company, but arrangements are agreed with the creditors to pay back the debts over a period of time. You've got compulsory liquidation, which is when a winding up petition is lodged on a company and a court is requested to order the payment of debts to whichever creditor has lodged the order. You've got voluntary liquidation, and this is decision is made to wind up a business and sell off its assets with the view of paying back as much of the credit as possible. And then you've got administration, and this applies where there's a primary goal to keep the company trading and the administrator is there to try and get the best result for the creditors as possible. Ultimately, if they can't keep the company trading, possibly by selling off portions of the business to raise cash, or by continuing to trade in certain profitable markets, they may ultimately have to wind up the business. But the intent is there to carry on trading if possible, and to try and get as much money back to the creditors as they possibly can. The things that you hear about the most are administration and liquidation. And whilst they're both formal procedures, the processes are very different. And as I've mentioned, the administration process is there to try and rescue the business and rescue as much money by continuing to trade for a period of time at least. Whereas liquidation is all about turning as much of the assets of the business into liquid cash And returning that to the various creditors, it seems to be, sadly, quite a regular thing within the construction industry. And part of that comes down to the narrow margins that some of the main contractors are forced to work with. Some of it comes down to the likes of optimism bias that certain risks might not happen, or the sort of general perception that it's all going to be alright, let's just keep on going and bollock through things. Each sort of sub-market within the construction industry has got its own elements of risk, and they can encounter difficulties for different reasons. When you're looking at the main contract forum, you've got the volume of competitive tenders out there, and the tender risk, and even negotiated jobs. In some instances, the way these can be set up are really unbalanced. So you've got the likes of target cost contracts where A lot of risk is put onto the contractor. But because of the likes of gain share arrangements, the contractor's got a real hard time making any proper money on a job. Any losses that they incur, they have to pay for themselves. But when they start getting into making more money than the fixed margin percentage, it either gets shared with the client or taken off them altogether. So then it might become better to enter into a lump sum arrangement whereby, at least if you can make savings or innovations throughout the construction project, then you get to keep the benefit of that. But then on the flip side, you're also there carrying the can in case of any problems. And a lot is said about the amount of risk that main contractors push downstream onto the subcontractors. But for me, it starts at the very top. Because a lot of the time, the main contractor is asked to take on a hell of a lot of risk. And depending on the scenario that they've priced the job under, there might not be the time to properly examine and get to know and understand all of the risks involved. Some contractors are pricing multiple, multiple jobs per week, bidding in competition against others. And there's sort of this feeling that when you've actually secured a job, you go back to the bid and you have a look at, oh, what have we missed in the tender this time? And even in negotiated situations, quite often it's the contractor's margin that has to take a hit. So in return for the reduced risk that's involved in a negotiated job, that ability to get to know about and investigate and properly price risks into a project results in the client saying to the contractor, you, you've got a reduced risk on the job. I want to see a reduced margin because you're not as exposed and the squeeze is put on in a different fashion for different reasons. Maybe it's rightly so. Maybe it's just everybody's sort of innate desire to try and get the best deal out of life. Like when you buy a car, you always want to think that you've got the best price that you could get for it. Does the same thing happen when you're buying a building? Probably yes. And then there's a further thought of, is the budget right to start with for any given job? A lot of the time, The client's budget is set based on some kind of cost advice that they've been given. The cost advice can be based on tenders or historic tenders. Sometimes those tenders that they're based on are ill thought through themselves and they might contain errors and so on that don't represent the full cost of a given building. So at the very outset of a job, a client might have set a budget based on some preliminary cost advice, which is square meter based, it's based on an incorrect and old tender, it might not have been properly adjusted for inflation, and as we've seen in the last couple of years, how do you predict inflation anyway? But the contractor might get leaned on or they might price a job based on a tender, or to achieve a client's budget that wasn't really realistic in the first place. And I genuinely think some of the problems within the main contracting industry start at that level. And from that level, from the top, the same approach trickles down the hill. It trickles down in risk. It trickles down in profitability. And when the project budget is tight, the squeeze goes all the way down to you, the subcontract supply chain, who is actually carrying out the work. And I doubt there's any client out there that when they're squeezing a contractor for an extra bit of discount off of a job that considers that actually that same discount has got to be taken out of the contract sum somewhere and the most likely place is going to be from the supply chain. And it's probably those situations where the contractor comes back and says, I need a bit more than the 2.5% discount you usually give me. But anyway, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent there and started talking about risks that then might be some of the reason behind the number of insolvencies that can happen, sadly, within the construction industry. And you don't have to look far back in time to see some of the really big names that have been affected, even in the last few years. We've got Henry Construction, Toland, Ilke Homes, Shaler Group, Simons, Clugstons, InterServe, The Colossus that was Carillion. These are just names that I can think of off the top of my head. And the scale of some of these companies, it just underpins. This can happen to anybody. You can't rely solely on the size of the company and the length of time that they've continued to trade for. You've really got to enter into subcontracts with your eyes wide open as to who you're trading with. It's not a situation of keep your fingers crossed and hope it all goes well. Because you're talking of protecting your livelihood and potentially the contractors or subbies that work for you. So what can you do? Well, check out who you're working for. As I said, you can't rely on the size of the company because some of the really large companies are really bad payers. But I mentioned in episode 10, whilst talking about retentions, there is a government-backed scheme for fair payment, a fair payment charter, and a quick search on Dr. Google you can look up on the government website the payment statistics of most of the major contractors out there and see how they are at paying their subbies. Watch out for organisations that are inherently adversarial and would look to set off or make contra charges and deductions. As I mentioned in the contra charge episode, there are genuine reasons why these get made, but there are Certain players in the marketplace that rely more heavily upon them and would look to them as a way to recovering their losses sooner and treat you less fairly ultimately. So it's worth considering, one, when you're starting working for these kind of organizations, whether you want to in the first place, but two, whether you can price in the right amount of risk to cover for things like that to sort of protect your end outcome. There's a very minimum you want to get a credit check done. Credit checks aren't the be-all and end-all, but at least they will give you a feel for the amount of bad debt and the confidence the wider market has in a particular company. And they aren't a bulletproof method of determining who's good to work for or who's good to work with. I recall a project where we were setting out to appoint a particular mechanical and electrical contractor, and we had a credit score done by our in-house accountant who was a particularly risk-averse person, as you probably would expect from an accountant. But he was so satisfied with this contractor's credit score that he wasn't even recommending a performance bond on a package that was circa a million pounds. But shortly before starting on site, that contractor went bust. And going back to Carillion that were mentioned earlier, there was a feeling in the marketplace that they just were too big to go bust and possibly that the government would support them no matter what because of the size and scale of the organisation. And we all know what happened in that instance. So I guess a word of warning that even when you do get a credit score, they are based certainly in part on the company's trading history. And the trading history can be spun to encourage investment in a company. So you have to consider whether they are actually telling you the truth when they're giving their financial reports or not. I'm not saying this to scare you down into a black hole forever, but more just to point out that you really do need to try and get to know and have a relationship with the people that you're working for. Diversification of your employers is important. One simple way for you to spread the risk of somebody going bust is to have multiple people handing out the money. Don't overcommit early. So if you've had one successful job, don't be too keen without establishing some good rapport and some good working relationship to climb into bed with the same contractor on multiple schemes at the same time. Develop good relationships with individuals within whatever organisation you're working with. A lot of the time there's a contracts manager, there's a quantity surveyor that if you can develop that good rapport with You can just have that bit more confidence that your payments are going to be looked at properly and you've always got that sort of friendly face that you can try and lean on to get your debt settled. Make the right decisions for the right reasons. It takes some balls to walk away from a job, but sometimes you just have to be able to do that and not be seduced by the turnover that you might be missing out on. And you've got to think about it in terms of If a contractor is to go bust, to become insolvent, and doesn't pay you, doesn't pay your last six weeks worth of work, plus whatever retention he's got with you, and goodness knows you might have been working for these guys for years, so it might spill into some quite big numbers. How many jobs do you have to do to earn back the profit that you've just lost in that 60 days of turnover and whatever retention? My betting is that you've got to turn over quite a lot of money to come back from that kind of a loss. Another thing that you can do is check your payment terms and try and get them to be as favourable to you as possible, i.e. a shorter set of payment terms as you can get. And sometimes it might be a case of you have to offer a bit of discount to lubricate the deal and get the payment terms you want, but at least you're getting your hands on the cash quicker And that ultimately means more certainty for you in the longer term. The same can be said about retention. If there's any way that you can reduce or do away with the retention altogether, or cap it if you've worked for a particular organisation a few times and you've got that rapport there to be able to negotiate a cap, make sure you get your money when it's due. Going back to episode five, where we spoke about payments, do as much as you can to apply for your money on time. Do it in a format that means you're more likely to get paid or certainly paid what you're asked for. And don't be afraid to give notice of suspending your performance if you don't receive your money. And one interesting thing that you could do, if you're a supplier of something that's particularly large or expensive, or you've got a few pieces of key plant, just a random example, if you're supplying a generator and it's worth a hell of a lot of money, you may want to try and negotiate a, either a retention of title so that you retain ownership of that piece of plant, your generator, until you're actually paid for it, or some kind of a payment where you receive at least part of the money for that item up front. If you're a company that trades with a lot of debt outstanding to various creditors out there within the construction industry, you might also think of insuring that debt. There are insurance firms out there that will offer that service and if you're not paid for whatever reason, will go out and set about recovering the money on your behalf. And the good thing about those policies is they pay you first and then pursue their subrogation rights to recover the funds. A little word of warning on that, though, in that, depending on your marketplace, that might not be a very cheap option. And if you're talking of factoring the cost of that insurance into your tender pricing, whilst it might be a necessity, you might find that it starts to make you uncompetitive. But it might be worth at least considering a portion of your debt being insured or considering if you think you've got an increased risk with working for a particular contractor, whether it's worth pricing that extra premium into your job for the sake of certainty and your business's longevity. Now the next problem becomes, how do you recognise when a contractor is going bust, or if you think they're going to go bust? What are the telltale signs? It's been a while since we've seen Mystic Meg looking into her crystal ball trying to predict the lottery numbers on a weekly basis and from the results that you would have had by backing her picks would have done you a fat lot of good anyway. But in today's data-driven day and age there is quite a lot of information available in the public domain relating to the financial health or the lack of it of your counterpart or your employer and whilst it's not an exact science, there's a few pointers, and some of them are more obvious than others. So, official announcements to shareholders or the market about their financial performance. Obviously, these announcements are made to the public domain, but it might be worth searching for them about your particular employer. And they may well lead into an obvious one, but it's not necessarily reliable, of there being persistent rumours within the industry as to the financial stability of a company. As I say, if you look at the likes of Kia over the last few years, there was a hell of a lot of speculation at one point, particularly not so long after Carillion had disappeared and then InterServe had disappeared, because of the amount of debt that Kia carried. And ultimately it's taken selling some of the family silver in their homes division to get back into a more equitable position and put paid to the rumours. Particularly when those rumours are present for a long period of time that the red flag should be waived. A key sign would be filing of company accounts or annual returns at company's house late. So they have to be filed within nine months of a company's financial year end. And not only does late submission come with penalties, it usually points at there being some kind of issue present and it being represented or further investigation being done to try and plug up a black hole, such as revaluating assets, say. One sign would be revisiting payment terms and trying to renegotiate them onto longer periods. And then we mentioned earlier where you can find some payment statistics on the company you're working for. Paying of supply chain invoices late and in some instances just not paying them at all. That clearly points at a lack of liquidity and cash flow problems. And then linked to that and arising from it, having court claims or county court judgments against them. A less obvious but very worrying sign would be stopping or omitting portions of work, particularly where it wouldn't seem to make any sense for a project. That sort of points at having limited cash or not being able to fund the work as it goes forwards. Then if there's any kind of suspension or stopping of work altogether without any reasonable explanation, that's a real red flag, as would be unexpectedly removing staff from a project or a site. Finally, if there's any word of not paying their own employees at the right points, if for whatever reason they're not paying their own staff, you can take it as a given that liquidation or administration is not far away. Forewarned is forearmed, as they say, but it might well be that you don't get to know until it's a done deal. If the company knows and it's acting responsibly, it might be a voluntary situation. The voluntary appointment of an administrator might happen pretty quickly and with limited warning. So it's always worth keeping an eye on Companies House online. You can follow various organisations on there. You can also search things such as the Gazette and the Central Registry of Winding Up Petitions, and those will give you records, probably more to confirm facts that you've already worked out for yourself, but at least you'd have the confirmation. There's also the Register of Judgments, Orders, and Fines for County Court Judgments, and as we mentioned before, Credit Scoring. Now you need to act quickly and decisively if the person you're working for is. In financial difficulty, and you really want to minimise your loss by minimising your exposure, and particularly if you've not been paid, don't be fobbed off with excuses of, I'll keep going, I just need to get to this point, and then I'll have a windfall, we'll be able to settle up and keep going. I've heard some horror stories about unscrupulous business owners encouraging suppliers to carry on working for them. Meanwhile, they're stripping the assets of the business themselves and taking any revenue that's been earned before wrapping the company up anyway and leaving the supply chain to mop up all of the problems, of course, without any money to do it. It's all well and good in these situations trying to do the right thing to help out, but ultimately it's your business doing the helping out and you've got to consider what the right thing to do is for your company not necessarily the company you're working for. So going back to episode five and issuing a notice, when you haven't been paid, whilst you do have to carry on for seven days, you might make a decision to carry on in a reduced capacity to mitigate your loss. Making sure the proper paperwork is in place will protect you from the likes of liquidated damages and potential delay contracharges If the non-payment turns out to be for another reason, at least you've protected yourself. And if you're really worried about insolvency at some level within your supply chain, either upstream or downstream, consider that there are specialists out there, creditor service providers and debt recovery organisations. Having a conversation with one of those at the right point, i.e. sooner rather than later, will put you in the best position to make the right decisions and protect your business, and keep you fighting for another day. Okay, well, it's a bit of a doom and gloom subject, but hopefully I've given you some positive pointers and some actions that you can have a think about for how you can protect your business and what to do should the worst happen. So thanks all for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard and you want to learn more, please do find us at www.qs.zone or you can subscribe to our training and support system for like-minded subcontractors. In there you'll find templates, how-to videos, interviews, and more. It's less than the price of your daily cup of coffee, and you can cancel at any time. We're also on all of your favorite socials at qs.zone. And thanks again. I've been Jacob Austin, and you've been awesome.